you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to the book of Malachi, the second chapter. <clears throat> Malachi, the second chapter. And while you're finding your place, as always, a word of gratitude to our musicians. Weren't those seven ladies awfully pretty out here to start our service this morning? Did a great job, too. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you. To choir, thank you very much. To all of our musicians, we are grateful to the Lord for you. Know that it takes time for you to get ready to play and sing and whatever on Sunday morning. We do not take that for granted. Thank you very much. I never apologize for the Word of God. I have had all week the distinct feeling in my heart that there's some things I'm going to say this morning that a lot of people don't like has to do with marriage, divorce. I would ask you to follow along in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and you check out and see whether I'm saying to you what is in the Word of God. And if I'm not, you take me to task. My desire is to state what is in the Scriptures, not to back up from it. We are living in a generation. We are living in a society. We are living with neighbors around us that don't believe what I'm going to say to you this morning. So be it. We are not the ones out of step when we believe the Word of God. May I say that again? When we believe what the Bible says, we are not the ones that are out of step. Thank you. I believe that with all my heart. All that said, pray with me, please. Father, speak through your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Give to us an openness just to say, Lord, this is your Word. Thus saith the Lord. And then, by your grace and by your enabling, uh, grant to us the strength to order our lives in accord with what you say. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Recent surveys tell us that almost 50% of the young people on college and university campuses today think of marriage as an obsolete institution. It is no longer pertinent. It is no longer relevant. It's not relevant to them. It's not relevant to society. And to encourage this view, one sociologist has written that instead of asking what's wrong with individual marriages, we need to take a step back and ask what's wrong with the whole institution of marriage. Do you see where society is going today? We are marching down a path that will do away with the biblical institution of marriage as God ordained it. My message this morning is a call back to a biblical concept of marriage and to a scriptural viewpoint of divorce. We are in the book of Malachi. Malachi is addressing the children of Israel. We are in verses 10 through 16 of the second chapter this morning. This is the longest passage in the Old Testament concerning divorce. The longest passage in the Old Testament concerning divorce. Divorce. Now, just to put this in place for just a couple of sentences here, last week and before, when we started the book of Malachi, a verse-by-verse study through this little book, we observed the priests and their sins. That's where Malachi started. And I think, frankly, that's an appropriate place to begin. The priests, the preachers, and their sins is an appropriate place to begin to get things right. Well, we've talked about those things, 
uh, in what, chapter 1, verse 6, down to verse 2, down to chapter 2, verse 9. This morning we begin a section on the people and their sins. And it is significant that the very first thing Malachi discusses when it comes to the people and their sins is the matter of wrong marriages and sinful divorces. And that's my outline this morning. Wrong marriages and sinful divorces. I want to begin by looking at the sin of wrong marriages in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12. Let me read them in your hearing. Malachi 2, verse 10. Do not all have one father, and if you'll give me a chance to explain that, he is not talking about the fatherhood of God. That is a myth, and no more than that. God is not the father of all men. That's not what he's saying here. And uh, before I completed the reading of these verses, I wanted to say that, because someone's liable to say, wow, look at that. I didn't know that the Bible taught that God was the father of all men. Well, the Bible doesn't teach God's the father of all men. And we'll talk about this in just a moment. Continuing verse 10. Has not one God created us? Now this is Malachi speaking. Why do we deal treacherously, each one against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our father? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now let's work through verses 10, 11, and 12 for just a few moments, if you please. What's the sin here? Remember I said a while ago, he's talking about the sins of the people here. Having looked at the sins of the priest, sins of the people are in view here. What's the sin here? Well, it certainly isn't marrying. God ordained marriage. There is no sin in that. The sin considered here is the sin of Jewish men marrying non-Jewish women. But it's more than that. That can be and should be, needs to be refined just a little bit more. The sin considered here is the sin of Jewish men who worship Jehovah marrying non-Jewish women who worship heathen gods. And this is the indictment that God brings against the people of Israel. Jewish men who believed and worshipped Jehovah were marrying non-Jewish women who worshipped heathen gods. Verse 11, he speaks of them as daughters of the foreign gods. Now let's look at these verses again, just a little bit more closely. He starts by saying, do we not all have one father? Now, what does that have to do with subject divorce? We all have one father. I believe our text is saying that of all the people of the world, there's only one race that can say God is our father. There's only one race that can say God is our father. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we'll not turn back there. You might make a note of it if you're interested. In 422 of Exodus, God says, Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. So God is saying, I have created Israel as a nation. I formed you. You are my sons and daughters. You are my children. Question, now why are you marrying outside the race? Why are you marrying daughters of pagan deities? 
Father here in verse 10 is a reference to God. And the question is, he is, or the statement is that he is the father of the nation Israel. He created them. And he is the, they are the only nation as a nation that can call him father. Let's go on to verse 10. There's a reference in the end of verse 10 to a covenant. Now, what covenant? Well, it's the covenant of Moses. You recall one day Moses went up into Sinai and he brought back a covenant. He brought back a contract and offered that to Israel. And Israel, we'll not take the time to go back there and read it, but Israel said when Moses came down with the law, all that thou hast said we will do. All that thou hast said we will do. And that covenant was conditional. That contract was conditional. If Israel would be obedient, then God would bless. But it was stated very clearly in that contract that Israel would be a separated, a select, and a peculiar people. Let me just, from those passages earlier, take three verses out of three different books. Again, I won't ask you to turn there. From the book of Leviticus. Thus you are to be holy to me, God says to the nation. For I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from all the peoples of the earth. God called the nation. He created the nation. He called them. He called them to be separate to himself, to be mine. From the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which they had promised, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples for all. All the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. One further reference from the book of Deuteronomy. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not, it couldn't be any more specific. You shall not intermarry. But then he says, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Very clear. And so when... Malachi says, you are profaning the covenant of our fathers, in verse 10. What's he saying? Exactly what Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy allege. You are to be a separate people. You are to be separated from others. You are not to marry those who worship heathen gods. That's what Malachi is concerned about. Just in passing, ladies, would you please notice the profound influence that you have on your husbands? I don't think things have changed all that much since Malachi's day. Men of Israel married those who were not part of Israel. They were not worshipers of the Lord God. And the word here is don't marry. Why? Because they will have an influence on their husbands. Women have a profound influence on their husbands in this matter of faith. I believe the Bible is clear about that. I pray that yours will always be a holy influence on your husband. Let's go on in our passage. Malachi has already charged them with marrying the daughters of foreign gods. In verse 12, he states the penalty for such disobedience. Look at verse 12. For as the man who does this, may it please, uh, excuse me, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers 
or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is a very strong expression. May they be cut off from the tents of Jacob. Now, in the New American Standard, which I have read, it speaks about everyone who awakes and answers. That is a proverbial expression. You know, today we we use proverbial expressions. We talk about the rich and the poor. What does that mean? It means everybody. And that's what this means. It is a proverbial expression, which means everyone. Okay? Anyone who does this, may they be cut off from the tents of Jacob. It's a severe penalty. May God judge, Malachi says, all who marry like this, of which Malachi speaks. All right, the first section deals with the sin of wrong marriages. I would love to have the time right here to talk about young, two young people about marrying someone that's not a Christian. And I'll come back in just a few moments for a moment or two to mention that again. The men in Israel were marrying non-Jewish women who worship pagan gods. And that brings us to the second point in my outline, the sin of wrong divorces. First was sin of wrong marriages. Second is the sin of wrong divorces. The specifics for this are laid out in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, and this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? And here's the answer. Why is it? The question. God says, I'll not accept your offerings. The men of Israel knew, but they asked the question. It was the question of an, a skeptic. Why? Why? God said this. And the answer is, begins in the second part of verse 14. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What's the charge now? He'd spoken to them about wrong marriages. But now it moves forward. It advances the sin of wrong divorces. For you see, some of these men who were marrying women of foreign gods divorced the wife of their youth. Wrong divorce. Just in reading these verses, I think you can almost feel the pathos, the hurt, the pain when these men divorced the wife of their youths. Um, I don't know. I'm rather inclined to say that there's no experience in life any more emotional, any more tragic than divorce. I don't believe death is as painful as divorce. Divorce leaves scars and hurts and emotions, the likes of which are not experienced at death. The altar was to be a place of worship, but these men came with their offerings. They came with their gifts and they came to pray. God would not receive their gifts. He would not hear their prayers. The men ask why. Well, they knew, but the Lord answers in verse 14. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. That's the reason it says God would not hear your prayers. God would not receive and accept your offerings. Why? God has been a witness 
between you and the wife of your youth. You have dealt treacherously with her, though she was your companion and your wife by covenant. And you have, by divorcing her, you have, de- you have dealt treacherously. For- by the way, if I've counted correctly, uh, the word treacherously associated with this matter is five times in these verses. The wife of your youth. That implies to me that some of these couples who were getting wrong divorces had been married for a long time. He speaks of the wife of your youth that you are divorcing. Women, however, never get old. Just men. And all the women said? Yeah, right. Someone observed there are seven stages of a woman's age. I like them. I think you will too. First, there is the infant. Second, there is the toddler. Third, there is a little girl. Fourth, there is a teenager. Fifth, there is a young woman. Sixth, there is a young woman. Seventh, there is a young woman. The women never get old. But some of these men were getting old. They were divorcing the wife of their youth, implying they were not youthful anymore. Now, I don't know. uh, I I may be taking a a little bit of liberty here. But, you know, you can picture what was going on here. You can see it in our society. Men were like an old buck, you know. They see a young doe, and they just can't live without her. And I don't know whether they did it in that day or not, but they do it today. A man who's never been to a hairstylist in his life. He's 55 years of age, and he sees this pretty young thing, and he can't live without her. So he goes to a hairstylist. He gets his hair styled. And then he opens the top two buttons on his shirt. Never done that before. He opens the top two buttons on his shirt. Well, that's not enough. Then he gets him a gold chain to wear around his neck. <laughs> then he's off to Ashworth to buy a totally new wardrobe. And then finally he figures he's got to do it, so he loses 25 pounds. Can't live without this young doe. Let me quote. I know what I'm talking about. Let me quote one 52-year-old businessman who was in the midst of getting a divorce and doing exactly what I've described to you. His words were, I want to be more the real me. I want to change with a changing world. It may come as a surprise to you, it did to me. Statistics show us that the peak period for divorces is from year one to year three of a marriage. But there's a secondary peak period of divorces. You know when that is? That's between the years of 20 and 30 years of married life. Today, among marriages that have endured between 20 and 24 years, the divorce rate is up 28%. Among couples married 25 to 29 years, the divorce rate is up 36%. The wife of thy youth. But there's more here than that. Would you notice again in verse 14, the wife of the covenant. The covenant. Let me ask you a question. How would you define marriage? If I had given out a piece of paper to everybody when you walked in the door and asked for you to, de- <clears throat> excuse me, to define marriage, how would you define marriage? Well, I believe Malachi chapter 2, verse 14 gives us the key. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a contract between a man and a woman that both will take the place, one of the husband 
one of the wife for the rest of their lives. Reduced to its minimum. Reduced to the basic essential. I believe that's what marriage is all about. It's a contract. It's a covenant between two people. You remember what you said? More than likely are the words close to this when you got married and taking this woman or this man that you hold by the right hand to be your lawful and wedded wife or husband before God and this company of witnesses present. You must promise to love, to honor, and cherish him or her in this relationship and leaving all others cleave only unto him or to her and to be to him or to her a true and a faithful husband or wife so long as the two of you shall live. Most of you in this room when you married said something very similar to that. That comes right out of what I use. That is a contract between two people that lasts for life. It lasts until one of you dies. And you answered that promise. The question then comes, do you so promise? And you answer, I do. You promised before a company of witnesses present and God himself that you would do that. Verse 14 adds to what I've already indicated, but something of supreme importance. Notice in verse 14, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Dear gentleman, dear lady, dear man, dear woman, when you stand before a justice of the peace, a preacher, whatever, I believe that there are three people involved there. A man, a woman, and God. Now, I don't know how else to put this. I have... I have Honestly, I have wrestled with this all week. I don't know whether to say this or not. It's very harsh. But you tell me if I'm wrong, okay? You stand before God with a mate, a man or a woman. And you promise that you're going to be with that person until one of you dies. And then one to three years later or 20 to 30 years later, you decide, I don't want to do this anymore. That lady that works in my office is 18 years younger, and she's prettier than my wife. I think I want to see if she wants to go to dinner with me. Works the same way with women. No different. Somebody works in your office, and he's 15, 18 years younger. He doesn't have a paunch out in front of him. And you're sure, you don't know it for a fact, but you're sure he didn't walk in and slop down in a chair with a TV controller and sit there the rest of the night. You're sure he won't do that. So there it goes. We're going to do something different. May I say to you, somebody has lied. Now that's as plain as I don't know how to make it. You stood before God and a group of people and you said, I'm going to be married to this person for the rest of my life. Preacher, that's unkind, isn't it? But it's the truth. Somebody lied. And it wasn't just to the preacher. That happens to preachers a lot. I'll see you in church next Sunday, preacher. Yeah, well, that's another matter. But somebody didn't tell the truth to God. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. God is the notary public. God puts the seal on that marriage. God is the witness to this covenant. We come to verse 15, and out of the, ver- the verses 10 through 16, verse 15, I think is probably the most difficult it's difficult to translate from the Hebrew text, and whatever way you translate it, the interpretation is rather difficult. Again, verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. 
And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. I believe this is a reference to the Lord God and to Adam. Adam was all alone in the garden. There wasn't another living soul anywhere. All alone. And the Bible says God saw that it wasn't good for him to be by himself. It wasn't good for him to be alone. Gentlemen, whatever else you say, you are not complete in yourself. Okay? Adam needed someone else. The matter then became, did God just make one wife for Adam? I wonder why that was. He who had the residue of the Spirit, I take that to be God. He could have created for Adam wife B, wife C, and as far as he wanted to go. But he didn't. He created one woman for one man. Why? I believe the answer to that is that God knew that for godly children, and this verse says he was seeking godly seed. For godly children, there needs to be monogamy. One wife and one husband. God's design in marriage from day one. God's design in marriage from the get-go was one man and one woman. And Adam and Steve didn't enter, the, enter into that either. Okay? One man and one woman. Polygamy and divorce are not conducive to nurturing godly children in the fear of the Lord. That's the lesson that I believe is here. And our Heavenly Father is seeking a godly seed. Well, the last part of verse 15 is as easy as the, as the first part was difficult. Look at verse 15, the middle of the verse. Take heed then to your spirit that no one deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit and do not deal treacherously. Point is... Don't get a divorce from your wife because in so doing you are covering your garments wrong. There will always be an aura of wrong about the individual who left the wife of his youth divorcing her. And divorce is violent. Make no mistake about it. It tears apart. Divorce tears apart. There's more. Do you notice that God says in verse 16, I hate divorce, so take heed to your spirit. Damage will result from divorce. Now, I want to close with a couple of areas of application. All right? To me, in preparing this, I find this to be a strong message. I can only deliver to you what's here. Okay? It says it here. I'm just a messenger. That's all. Let me, uh, first of all, drive home some applications to all in this room who have yet to marry. If you have yet to marry, maybe it would be of some help to you. I know that you will not agree with all of it, but again, I believe it's what God says. Parents, if you're here this morning and you've got Preteens or teens, it might do you well to write these things down too. There are seven things. 
Number one, do not marry, okay? My heading here is do not marry until. Do not marry until, number one, you find a person you love and not a body that you lust. Do not marry until you find a person you love and not a body you lust. Today our world spells love with three letters, S-E-X. But I love him. How many times have I heard that? And I often think, what that means is your hormones are responding to his hormones. And that isn't love. Okay? That is not love. Don't marry until you find a person that you love, not a body that you lust. Number two, do not marry until you find a wife who is a helper to you. I'll come back to that in just a second. Young lady, don't you marry until you find somebody that you can obey. I wish I had a nickel for every time I had been approached after a wedding when I used the Ephesians passage. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And the wife is to obey her husband. If I had a nickel for every time I had been approached by either a best man or a maid of honor, I'll never forget one of, the, one of the strongest denunciations I've ever had came right back here to Fellowship Hall. I had done a, a wedding for a Christian couple, and they had no qualms with this. But the maid of honor read me the riot act right in the middle of the room back here. How dare you say that? She is to obey him? You're not serious, are you? And the way I answered her was, I think God was serious. See, I didn't make this up. And that's what I told her. God did. Don't marry somebody if you can't obey him. Why? Because the New Testament says that a wife is to obey her husband. She's to be subject to her husband. That's what, that's what the Bible says. And I usually, I have come to the place over the last years of saying in my wedding counseling, I'll look at him and say, if you don't love her enough to die for her, we better call this thing off right here and now. It's not going to be good. And I look at her and say, if you don't love him enough to, to, to be subject to him, then we ought to call this thing off right here. It's not going to work out well. Don't marry, young man, until you find a wife who will be a helper. Young lady, don't marry until you find a husband that you can submit yourself to. This matter of being a helper is... Uh, intolerable to much of society today. You marry somebody that's not a helper to you, it's not going to work out well. Young man wants to be a physician. I don't know how many years that would take. College, medical school, internship, residency, the whole nine yards, a long haul to say the least. Or a young man who wants to go into a certain business where it may take years and years of training. And he marries a young woman who's never looked at a price tag, who spends money like water, and her dad has always given her anything she wanted while she was growing up. My friend, those two marry, and it's going to be trouble. It just will. Young man, you find a helper. Go back to Genesis 2 and read it yourself. Adam was alone. God saw that he needed a helper. That's God's word for it. 
And God created Eve. Number three, don't marry until you find a person who fits you and one you like to be with. You're here dating today? Do you fuss and fight and argue and carry on when you're on a date? When you go home, does he not even get out of the car and open the door for you? You walk in, when you walk in the door to your house, do you just slam the door because you're mad? Does he floor it when he drives off because he's mad? I like this one too. Does he love to camp out in a tent? Does he like to sleep on a hard ground and vacation sleeping on a hard ground in a tent? And you don't want to be any closer to, the, to a tent than Hyatt Regency. That's going to be a problem. Find somebody that fits you. One you'd like to be with. Number four, find a person that you know well. You know, if I understand the scriptures correctly, uh, there was a year of engagement period. I think that's still a pretty good rule. I think that's still a pretty good rule. Number five, find a person who has similar goals in life. Two people with totally separate goals living under one roof is going to be a, uh, it's going to be a problem. It's going to be miserable. Number six, don't marry until you find a time free of stress. If there's been a great calamity in your life, don't get married right then. There's enough stress and strain in the marriage without adding to it, by going into it with a whole lot of additional stress and strain. I'll just throw this one out. That may apply to college. Um, to most young adults, college is a pretty stressful time. If they're trying to graduate and do well, that may not be the time to get married. Think it over. Number seven, most important of all, the most important thing of all, don't marry until you find a man or a woman who's a Christian. That's the point of Malachi. You are marrying daughters of pagan deities, and it won't work well. That's one whole area of application. Would you give me just another couple of minutes? A second major area of application. It's this. Perhaps there is stress in the marriage of somebody that's in this room today. Please remember, the goal is always reconciliation. Yes, there are biblical grounds for divorce. But even so, where those grounds exist, God says reconciliation is the best. Keep the marriage together. Don't deal, five times the words used, treacherously with your mate. One last thought. It may well be that there are within the sound of my voice lives have been, who have been touched by divorce. One or two thoughts. Hear me well. Divorce doesn't make anyone a second-class citizen. May I share with you a distress? I know I'm over time. May I share with you a distress? Young lady, through no fault of her own that I am aware of, was divorced. Member of this church. Grew up in this church. And said that she couldn't come back to church. And I said, why, dear? Everybody's looking at me. Everybody thinks I was wrong. May I say to you, may God deliver Wake Chapel Church from being a place like that. Suppose everybody knew that, that you committed some particular sin and you walked in church and everybody did like this to you. That's not a church. It's something else, but it's not a church. Divorce happens. It doesn't make a person a second-class citizen. And we ought to love them 
if, if possible, even more, go out of our way to embrace them because they're hurting. And we want to make it worse. God deliver us from that. Divorce doesn't make anybody a second class citizen. Divorce has touched your life. You go on in your spiritual life from where you are today. Mourning over the past is without profit. And for the rest of us, where God permits divorce, let's accept it and go on. Remembering, as I've said already, somebody's hurting. We don't want to make it harder. I close with this thought. Marriage is the second most important decision in life. Most important decision you will ever make is not the one I will marry. The most important you will ever make, most important decision that you will ever make in life is what about my personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I've said some things this morning that uh, could very easily be consuming some of our thoughts right now. May I ask you, set that aside for a minute. If you are within the sound of my voice this morning, for just a moment, would you ask yourself right now, if I were to die today, where would I spend eternity? I don't know, 300 people here, maybe 275 people, whatever. I hope we'll have 275 or however many people are here asking the question, if I die today, where will I spend eternity? My, my dear friend, you need to answer that. We have no guarantee of another breath, not one. Where are you going to spend eternity? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Please get this down. You can't do one single thing to stop him from loving you. Not one single thing can you do to stop Jesus from loving you. Would you trust him as your Savior? I mean, he died for you. Just on the basis of life and death. Couldn't you trust somebody that would die for you? And even more so if it's the King of kings and Lord of lords. If it's the creator of all that exists. If it's the one who died on Calvary. Can't you trust somebody who would die for you? Pray with me. Lord, these are difficult words. uh, And we're living in a day when they are scoffed at. They are laughed at. They are thought of as foolish. And we've tried our best this morning, Lord, to read them right out of the word of God. And say, here's what they're talking about. I pray that you would help the church of Jesus Christ, beginning at the church of Wake Chapel, to stand for the truth of the Word of God. To teach our children and our young people to find a Christian before they entertain the thought of marriage. And Lord, no doubt somebody, somebody's heart's been broken. I pray that you would help them to go on. Help them to realize that you love them and this church loves them. Thank you, Lord, for dying for us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless your day and encourage your heart. If there's a burden that you're bearing, may he lift your burden. May you look to him and trust him for his blessings that he's offering you today. That's my prayer for you today. Curtis, dismiss us with prayer, please. Will you bow and pray with me?
Father, we have gathered today before you, the one and only God, to read your word, to listen to your messenger, to pray, to ask for forgiveness. And we pray that in all that we have done that we have pleased you. Father, we are a, a needy people. This is evidenced by the long list of names that are on our prayer list. I pray that you will take each one of these situations, that you will com give comfort, that you will answer questions that they may have in mind, that you will heal. Yes, we know that you are the great physician, that there's no miracle that's not impossible with you. Father, we <clears throat> thank you for missionaries, for those that give their life and their time to take your guidance and carry it to people that don't know you. We pray for Dan and Donna Standridge, who, who worked through Crossword, uh, located in Milan, Italy. Uh, we pray for them. We pray for their family. We ask that you continually give them not only monetary support, but spiritual support. Lead and guide them as they plant churches, as they uh, teach, as they preach, and as they counsel the people of Italy. Father, <clears throat> thank you that we worship a God of forgiveness. Your word has taught us that we have all sinned, but it also assures us that you will forgive. I ask now that you lead and guide and direct us as we leave. <clears throat> I share the words from Hebrew 13:15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Father, we thank you for all your gifts, and we pray in your name, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh -huh.